0: Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. As Jeremiah continues, he's been talking in chapter 30 about the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's sorrow or trouble in chapter 30. And now in chapter 31, how joy will replace sorrow. It begins in verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people, thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin daughter of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines and you shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food, for there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord, our God, for thus says the Lord sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord. Hosanna, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. There shall come. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their soul shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. And we're going to pause for just a moment. In chapters 30 and 31... Jeremiah envisions a time of restoration for Israel. You know, restoration has become popular again. On television, there are shows about taking old things and broken things and making them new. I don't know about you, but I have things that I wish I would never have gotten rid of. My 53 Ford pickup truck. My 1967 GTO. My 1956 Oval Window Volkswagen. My heart's starting to flutter just thinking about him. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith has a 1957 Ford Fairline convertible that he took from a junkyard and he completely restored it. You know, God is in the business of restoration. And you've got to understand that the kingdom of the north had been dispersed the kingdom in the south has been ravaged by babylon and so they're in pain and they're in sorrow but god is giving them a vision a a a dream, if you will, a a prophecy concerning the restoration and the restoration will be preceded by a time of cleansing, which we've already looked at in chapter 30 verses four through eight and then verses 11 through 16 and verses 23 through 24, which seems to point to a time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's sorrow, which we learned in the last chapter, the time of cleansing will include a time of punishment and judgment for the world for both both Jew and Gentile, both the need for suffering and the nature of suffering is described in chapter 30. The need for suffering, the nature for suffering. In what way? The need because of sin. The nature of that punishment is severe. And the reason why it is so severe is because the sin is so severe. There needs to be a cleansing And now Jeremiah continues with a description of the conditions During the restoration, Jeremiah has revealed that Israel will be regathered and resettled in the land. God will draw the Jewish people out of the nations of the world where they've been scattered. They will serve the Lord, it says, David, their king in chapter 30, verse 9. The capital, Jerusalem, other cities will be rebuilt. The population will increase. Once again, they'll be God's special people. They will experience favor. Enjoy I think most of you know what the word. Alienation means. It's a word that we use to describe estrangement, detachment, division. It's a word we use to describe brokenness. And we understand that we live in a world where sin breaks our relationship with God and it Breaks our relationship with each other. It hurts us and hinders us. And then it creates massive feelings of guilt and estrangement. Sin alienates us from God. But Jesus redeems us back to God. Forgiveness provides reconciliation and restoration. And I need you to understand that God's answer to alienation is to make peace. I want you to think about that for just a moment. He's the injured party, but he makes a way for you to be forgiven. He makes a way for you to be cleansed. He makes a way for you, instead of being punished, to be rewarded throughout eternity. And so we place our hope in the Lord. Hope rests not simply on popular prophecies or political powers. We hope in the Lord Himself. And so God promises to restore Israel and the restoration is based on God's promise preserved in his word. The restoration is based on God's loving kindness. It's based on God's faithfulness here in verses 1 through 14. The restoration is based on God's mercy in verses 15 through 26. The restoration is based on God's promises to establish a new covenant with his people. We're going to find out at the end of the chapter. So it begins with the promise of restoration. Look at verse one at the the same time, says the Lord. Now, remember, we've just come off of chapter 30 and the time of enormous cleansing and tribulation at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. What should you ask the text? What time is that at the same time? In New Orleans, where I come from, people have a funny way of asking you what time it is. They say, what time it is? Where are we at on the clock? Here, it's the last days. Look at chapter 30, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart in the latter days. You will consider it. When did the latter days begin? It began during the earthly ministry of Jesus, his life and his death and resurrection. According to the New Testament, the latter days, the last days began that Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. And you might be thinking, well, the last days are lasting a really long time. But the Bible says that one day is a thousand years. The clock is ticking. Why are the last days seemingly lasting so long? I think you know the answer. The Bible says that God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. There's a reason why the clock is ticking so slowly. It isn't, as Peter says, because as God counts slowness, but he is he's inviting and beckoning people to come into his presence. And who are the families of Israel? All the tribes, all the clans of Jacob. He's talking about a restoration of his people. And in verse 2 it says thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, here's the hope. There's punishment and discipline, but who's going to be restored? The people who survived the sword who are found in the wilderness. Part of the point is that God's going to show grace on all of the exiles who survived the captivity and returned to the promised land. Here is the picture. The picture is, yes, the people have been disciplined. Yes, the cities have been destroyed. Yes, Jerusalem is going to be torn down. But God's going to shower grace because there's a remnant who's going to survive and who are going to return back to the land. So the restoration is based on a promise but look again, the restoration is also based on God's effectual call. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 is one of those amazing verses that you have probably run across on more than one occasion. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. This has been called by the theologians, the effectual call of God. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who likened this verse, and he said, it isn't the call that you might expect. It isn't the iron fist of the law banging at the door of your conscience, splintering the wood, demanding justice and punishment. But it's the whisper. The silent call of God through Jesus Christ. Knocking at the door of your heart. Not because He hates you, but because He loves you. You know, this was the key concept for me that brought me to a place where I could even consider the claims of Christ. It wasn't the fact that I deserved to go to hell that brought me to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the possibility That He could love somebody like me. That He could forgive somebody like me. That He would want to have a relationship with somebody like me. God draws. The Lord has appeared of old to me, Jeremiah writes. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The picture is one of God drawing. The Holy Spirit beckoning. The New Testament confirms the reality that no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. There is this drawing and all throughout history God has called and drawn the people to Himself. The The idea of being God is pouring out his unfailing love, his unfailing mercy, his unfailing kindness. And all of a sudden, over and over again, instead of the threat of disaster, you begin to respond to the possibility of love. There's a reason why God wants to save you. It isn't because you deserve to be saved. It isn't because... There's something commendable inside of you. But rather, there is a God who created you and who, is, who loves you and draws you. So the restoration is based on promise and the restoration is based, look, look, look at the text, not on something that they do, but rather on something God does in order to draw them back to himself. <laughs> And look again in verse 4. The restoration is based on God's prophecy. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and you shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You've got to understand, remember what I've already told you. The united kingdom of David and Solomon became divided after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom collapsed under the weight of their own apostasy and eventually died out and were taken captive by Assyria. The southern kingdom collapsed under the weight of its own apostasy and was eventually taken captive by Babylon. The hint in the future seems that God is going to take this broken, fragmented nation and He's going to unite them again to be one people serving one God. And it says, again, I will build you. It's the Lord who builds. God has a vision, and God has a dream, and God has a plan. The Lord predicts the future restoration of the nation, and it would seem impossible. The people return after the Babylonian captivity, and there is this amazing thing that happens. <laughs> They were brought into the subjugation of the Persians and then the Greeks. And during the time of the Greeks, there's a brief period of freedom. The temple is restored and then Rome comes in. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ appears at just the moment that God had ordained and he lives the life and he dies on the cross and he rises from the dead. And Jerusalem is destroyed once again. And the people are scattered once again. And then the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity happens. Assyrians and Babylonians have never come back. Um, when you think of the collapse of, of civilizations over the, the course of human history, how many have ever come back and become a nation again? But on May 14th, Jews Are are returned to the to the land and they're declared a free and independent state. There's not a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, but there's a united nation. And who gets to go? All Jews are welcome. Now this is interesting. The Lord predicts the restoration of the nation, and I want you to read this again because you should be astonished when you read it. You should look at it and you should say, How is that even possible? He says, You shall be rebuilt, O Virgin of Israel. What? Virgin of Israel? That would be like Madonna <laughs> saying, Not just like a virgin, I am a virgin. And everybody laughs out loud because of the ridiculousness of the statement. How is this even possible? How can someone who's been so unchaste and impure, how can someone who's been joined as a harlot to false gods and false worship, how is this even possible? How is it possible that the impure can become pure? You need to look into the text. When God reconciles his backsliding people to himself, he cleanses them from sin. You look at that text and you should be astonished. There should be chills going up and down your spine. How is it possible for something so dark to become so light, so broken, to become so whole? How can something so impure become pure? Because think about it. It's the restoration that's based on God's call. It's the restoration that's based on God's prophecy. It's the restoration that's based on the fact that it's God who cleanses you from sin. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new life. He gives you a new future. And that restoration has practical benefits. What happens when God's people are restored to the land and cleansed from sin? Why the people sing and dance for joy. The people plant and eat the fruit of their labors without fear from enemies in verse 5. The people will make a commitment to true worship. And and the watchmen of the prophets of God will direct the people of Ephraim to worship in the land of Zion. That's Jerusalem in verse 6. And so you begin in verse 5. Look what it says. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. Remember what I've said. The, the, The kingdom is divided. Samaria is in the northern kingdom. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. Because Samaria was a part of the northern kingdom and it was already occupied, this seemed impossible. For there shall be a day, it says in verse 6, when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. Ephraim is again a part of the northern kingdom. You'll remember that in captivity in Egypt, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Their children, Manasseh and Ephraim, will constitute the vast majority of the northern kingdom. The implication is that both the people of Samaria and the people of Ephraim return to Zion. When you see Zion, think Jerusalem. And worship the Lord. Why is this important? Because the promise of reconciliation is extended to a group of people who would otherwise be extinct. Does God's promise of reconciliation, if it reaches back hundreds of years to the northern kingdom in order to bring people to himself, you should ask yourself this question. If God's promises of redemption and restoration and reconciliation... Can can reach back into the past? Can it reach back into your past? Can God save somebody like you? Will you experience forgiveness and reconciliation? You'll remember that the Lord spoke to Paul and he characterized the gospel of Jesus Christ as a gospel of reconciliation where broken things are made whole, where dark things are made light, where horrible things are made new, no matter how far we've strayed, no matter how wicked our thought, no matter how bad our behavior, no matter how foolish our choices, you can return to the Lord. You probably had that conversation. Probably on more than one occasion. You laid your head on a pillow and you said, can I go to the well of forgiveness one more time? Is God willing to hear me say, I'm sorry, one more time? How many times do I have to apologize for this wickedness? How many times do I have to apologize for this sin? How many times do I have to apologize for this brokenness? How many times do I have to apologize for this failure? How is it that God saves me and Christ cleanses me, but there is this ongoing dirty work of cleanup taking place day after day and week after week and month after month? And the answer is because God is in the business. Not only of forgiving you and washing you and cleansing you, but taking you through the process of sanctification. He's molding you and shaping you. We can arise and return to the Lord. We can get up and go back to Zion. To the Lord our God. Maybe you have had to do that. Or maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to experience that grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so beginning in verse seven, there is the promise to save and then abundantly provide for the people. Remember the promise, the promise to restore the people to the land and reconcile the people to himself was to prompt songs of praise. In verse seven, look what it says. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say Oh, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Does this mean that Israel will become the chief of the nations? I think so. Look at the text again. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness. Why are you singing for gladness? Because restoration is taking place. Shout among the chief of the nations. What? Israel? Tiny Israel the size of New Jersey? Jerusalem? I know that there's one superpower, the United States of America. Here's the United States of America. Here's China. I mean, I could see Brazil in the future maybe becoming the chief of nations, but Israel? Jerusalem? Who in their crazy, wildest dreams would imagine this nation as the chief of nations? But this is what the Bible says, that the Messiah is going to come and he has established Jerusalem as his capital. And Israel as his nation. That seems crazy. That's like crazy talk. But that's what the Bible says. Jerusalem will be the capital of the coming king. Jerusalem will become the seat of human government. Now, all of a sudden, it should become clear to you. Why is, why is a, a country the size of New Jersey and a city like Jerusalem with a temple mount that's 15 acres? What is it about Jerusalem and what is it about Israel that captures the imagination of the entire world? How is it possible that hundreds of millions of people will go to war over that tiny little plot of dirt? Because there's something supernatural that's happening. There is something amazing happening. You might think the country of Israel and the city of Jerusalem don't matter. You couldn't be more wrong. I have my little cool Jerusalem timeline that I got from Rose. I love this thing. I love it. It goes from the very beginning to the very end. The earliest mention of Jerusalem is an Egyptian text dating from the 20th or the 19th century BC. According to archaeological finds, Jerusalem became a fortified city with a complex water system 1,800 years before Christ. The first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible is in Genesis 14:18, when Abraham encounters Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem is believed to be a shortened name for Jerusalem. Genesis, Abraham tests God and And Abraham is tested by God. He offers his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. This is the first mention of love in the Bible. And it's the love of a father for his son. You march through history. During the reign of David, he captures the city. During the reign of Solomon, he experiences a time of peace and prosperity. The temple's built on Mount Moriah by King Solomon. He dies. The Egyptian pharaoh Shishak attacks Jerusalem and plunders it in in the 9th century uh, B.C. And then for every century afterwards, 7th century, 6th century, 5th century, 4th century, 3rd century, 2nd century, 1st century, century after century, 23 times, Jerusalem is leveled and then rebuilt again. How do you explain it? Because... God's going to restore the country and he's going to restore the city and it's going to become the seat of human government and it's it's going to be the place of his throne. But this is way more important than it's just a restored nation and a restored city. Here's what you need to understand. Because God has made the promise that he's going to restore the nation and he's going to restore the city when he makes promises to you that he's going to restore you, that he's going to wash you, that he's going to cleanse you, that he's going to prepare you. He's preparing you for eternity, a fellowship with him. No wonder we sing praises. No wonder it prompts joy. The restoration includes the the most vulnerable. Look what it says in verse eight. Behold, verse 7, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth and among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return here. Why Again, why is this important? Because the Lord promises to save and restore... The most vulnerable. Who are the blind and who are the lame and who are the pregnant? These are the people who have the least ability to be able to take care of themselves. Now, some have suggested that the north country may refer to the former Soviet Union or the northern countries of the diaspora. We know that the, that the children of Israel were first dispersed to the north and then they came back from Babylon and Assyria Then they came back from Russia. Is there a future diaspora? I'm going to suggest yes. It could have a dual meaning and it could have multiple meanings. The Jews return after the Babylonian captivity. In modern times, they've returned to the modern state of Israel from the northern countries, from Eastern Europe and from Russia. And the return seems miraculous. What is it saying? There's going to come a time... When the nations will no longer enslave or brutalize the Jews. Bad news. Has that time come? No. How do we know? Because the Jews are still being brutalized and enslaved. They're still being persecuted and isolated and sometimes even killed. So how are we to think about what we're looking at? There will come a time in human history. There will come a time in human history that the Lord God himself will free his people from their enemies. Why is this important to you? Because if God is going to free his people from their enemies, then he's going to free you from your enemies. Because you're God's people. And who are your enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil. And so God is at work. The Lord gathers a vast multitude. He brings them back into the land. No true believer is excluded. Look at the text. The blind, the lame, mothers who are advanced in pregnancy, even those who are simply days away from giving birth to a baby, they all join with the great multitudes returning to the land. The picture is people who are vulnerable, who are hurt, who are susceptible. And it's God who leads them. And look, the restoration includes repentance and prayer. As the people return in verse 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplications. And look what it says. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Weeping in the Bible becomes a type and a picture of repentance. Remember there's two kinds of weeping. There's there's the kind of crocodile tears that well up inside of you because you've been caught. I guess I'm busted. It's not the crocodile tears that's being spoken of here. I'm going to suggest to you that this is the type of weeping. They're coming weeping because he accepts true repentance and heartfelt prayer. The restoration includes heartfelt repentance and heartfelt prayer as the people return. And God knows our hearts and he knows our prayers. And he understands the difference between true and false repentance. What's false repentance? I'm willing to acknowledge that my sin is wrong. I'm even willing to turn from it for a while. False repentance is when you look at whatever it is that you're doing and you can't wait to do it again. That's false repentance. But true repentance heartfelt prayer. Here's the idea. The restoration includes repentance and prayer. He allows the repentant to join those who are marching to the promised land. And I want you to see the picture. I think you understand that the promised land is both a symbol of Jesus and it's a symbol of heaven. But in the very real sense, a real group of people are going to return to this very real land. But for you, when you turn from your sin and you repent with genuine heart, guess what? You get to join in the parade of the people who are marching towards heaven. And look who's leading them. It's the Lord who leads them. The Lord guides. The Lord leads on the journey. And look what else it says. They come with weeping, supplications. I lead them to walk by rivers of waters. Why? Because sometimes the journey means that you incur thirst haven't you ever walked a very long ways haven't you ever traveled to a far distant place and your mouth became parched and you became thirsty but here is the idea that in the journey look what it says i will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters the implication being that during the course of the journey he is going to satisfy your thirst Remember, Jesus said, I'll come and you'll have rivers of living water that well up inside of you. Are you walking with Jesus? Have you begun the journey? Have you started taking steps towards heaven? And during the course of taking the journey, you've encountered thirst Well, Jesus promises to satisfy and look what else it says in a straight way in which they will not stumble. The implication is a level road because, again, those people who are pregnant and those people who are blind and those people are who are lame. Do you think that those are the people you want to drag up the 14ers in Colorado? I guess it's possible, isn't it? Pregnant girls could make the journey. Blind people can make the journey. Lame people can make the journey, but it's going to be difficult. But here's what the Lord promises. No, I'm going to find a straight path and I'm going to find a level way to bring you to the place where you belong. And so. You know what question I think you need to ask this verse? Why does the Lord care so much? Why does he care so deeply? He gives the reason for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn or my preeminent son. The implication is he is he cares deeply and he cares so much because he is a father to his people. And so when you ask the question, why does he care about me? Why does he even care if I wake up or what I do throughout the day? Why does he even care what kind of a job I have? Why does he even care who I see or who I don't see? Why does he even care? He cares deeply. Because remember, the Bible says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. God. Remember, Jesus said, when you pray, pray to your Father and pray this way. Jesus invites you to consider the fact that your Father in heaven is the God of the universe. And so the restoration includes repentance and prayer as the people return. And it also includes a caring shepherd. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Who is he addressing this to? Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. Greece. Rome, Crete, Spain, Africa, Asia, North America, South America. He's addressing the nations. He's addressing the nations and he's drawing attention to the fact that God's doing something supernatural and God's doing something miraculous. God is doing something supernatural and miraculous with the Jew and with the people (laughs) of God. How do, the, how do the nations respond? We don't believe in God and we don't believe the Jews are a special people. Mr. Ahmed Adinijab, President of Iran, what do you want to do? They are the little Satan. We want to drive them into the sea. I, I need you to think about this for just a moment. Why... Is it so important for a particular group of people to eradicate the people of of Israel? I'm going to suggest to you that there is a satanic component. The satanic component is if we can get rid of these people, and we can get rid of Jerusalem, and we can get rid of the promises of God, I need you to think about this. If God's promises will fail, towards these people then God's promises can fail toward you and there are people you will meet them every day who will tell you that the bible isn't true and that Jesus isn't lord and that the promises that god makes in the gospel can't be trusted but the bible says no Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. The isles afar off, I think, refer to all of the distant lands, including our land. And say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. Oh, you mean the same God that disciplined them is also going to restore them? Yes, and keep them as a, as a shepherd does his flock. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather them in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. In an age of ever-increasing technology, we want tech support. When your computer fails, you call the guy who knows about computers. When your iPad explodes, you call the Apple store. In an agrarian society, people need shepherd support. And here, throughout the history, the Lord has been forced to discipline and scatter Israel into the foreign nations because of her sins. But in the last days, he gathers them into the promised land and he watches over them like a shepherd watches his flock. And the picture of the shepherd is this picture of protection and guidance and provision. And who, of course, in the New Testament is the good shepherd? Jesus, isn't he? I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. The restoration includes repentance and prayer, but it also includes a caring shepherd. And the restoration includes redemption and ransom. Look at verse 11. It says, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. That word redemption and redeemed is an important word. It means to buy back from the marketplace. In our culture, and society, we have a different phenomenon. We call it pawning. You go to the pawn shop. And you say, What will you give me for this very expensive item? I'll give you $5. What? You know, what you think is valuable, the, the pawn people don't think is valuable. But this was my mother's jewelry. This was my grandmother's wedding ring. This was something important. This was something valuable. This is a family heirloom. But that's what sin does. It sells you into slavery. Redemption meant to buy back from the marketplace. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger and the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Now, again, you should ask the question, how did God redeem Jacob? By simply making a promise By simply saying that he's going to return them to the land. The ransom paid by God was the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross to ransom both Jew and Gentile in Romans 3.24. It says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 11 when it says for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one who's stronger than him. That means Because they're in captivity to Babylon, the only way that they're going to be released is if God releases them. And the only way you're going to be released is if God releases you. Why is that important? Because the text could have said, for the Lord allowed Jacob to change her ways. Or the Lord allowed them to get a grip on how wicked and stupid they were and foolish they were. Or the Lord said, look, when you go to church and read your Bible every day and pray every once in a while, when you quit acting like a jerk. But the Lord says, and the Bible says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the just for the unjust, restoration includes redemption and ransom. <laughs> and the restoration includes abundant provision. Look at verses 12 and, and through 14. In verse 12 it says, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the, and the herd. Their souls, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden. They shall sorrow no more at all. In poetic language, Jeremiah describes this abundance of crops, an abundance of food. It includes grain and new wine and oil and meat from the flocks and the herd. Here's the idea. There's so much food that it's available for everyone. The Lord eliminates all sorrow. Now, think about what the text is saying. Sorrow brought on by hunger. Sorrow brought on by famine. Sorrow brought on by poverty. So if there's going to be no hunger, no famine, no poverty. What is the Lord going to have to do? He's going to have to eliminate hunger and sorrow and poverty. And look at that text and they shall sorrow no more at all. You know how we know that this time hasn't come yet? Because some of you woke up pretty pathetic this morning. There's still a little bit of sorrow, huh? There's some residual sorrow going around. There's some residual hunger and famine and poverty. But the Bible envisions a time. When the Lord Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords eliminates sorrow. In verse 13 it says, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. The Lord brings cause for celebration and cause for comfort and cause for joy. And look, men and women, young and old, they dance like their life depends upon it. No longer are people gripped with sorrow. They're no longer gripped with fear due to sin. They're no longer gripped with suffering and the trials of life. And when it says, I will satiate the souls of the priests, remember in the Levitical kingdom, in the Mosaic covenant, it was the priest's responsibility. They literally survived off the goodness and the generosity of the people who, in willingness and obedience, would give what they could in order to make sure the priests could eat. That's the idea. There were times when the people were less than generous with the priests, and there were times when people are less than generous with people in the ministry. But that wouldn't be this time, and it wouldn't be you. You guys are very generous. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that true believers, those who know the Lord, they understand something. That God is my provision. That God is my hope. That God is my joy. That God is my abundance. Exceeding, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. Exceeding, abundant, above all that we could ask or think. And the restoration will include an end to all grief and mourning. Look very quickly at verse 15. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Most of you are going to be familiar with that passage because it's repeated in the New Testament. The New Testament writers assign at least part of the fulfillment of that passage. In Bethlehem, you'll remember when Jesus was born and Herod in a freakish desire to, to maintain power and control as the one and only king when he discovers that a king has been born he orders the slaying of all children under the age of two wiped out it's in Ramah and Bethlehem the Lord instructs Rachel to stop crying I want you to think about what you're reading Jeremiah sees Rachel crying why is she crying Remember who Rachel is. Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Rachel is the wife of Jacob who gives birth to Joseph, who becomes the person who will liberate his brothers from the land of Egypt. She also gives birth to Benjamin. But on the road to Bethlehem, when she gives birth to Benjamin, what happens? She dies. She dies in childbirth. Why is she crying? Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin, when the Babylonians took them captive from Judah, you know what was the first stop in their exile? It was Ramah. Ramah was the place where the exiles gathered before being shipped to Babylon just very quickly. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 40. Verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard who had let him go from Ramah, when he had taken him bound in chains among all those who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon, have you ever been to an airport or a train station and you see people being loaded into the train and you see people being loaded into the airports? The exiles are being loaded towards Babylon and the picture in the spirit is is Rachel weeping. She's crying. She's wondering. Was the pregnancy worth it? Was having this baby worth it? Was dying to have the baby Worth it. We see a picture of Rachel crying for God's people who are about to be carried away to Babylon. And like I said, the New Testament writers see in this passage a picture of Herod slaughtering the the innocents in Bethlehem. It also, I'm going to suggest to you, appears to be a picture of God's people in the future. They are persecuted and they are being slaughtered in the last days. Before the coming of Jesus Christ. Now that you know that now, again, ask yourself the question, why does the Lord instruct Rachel to stop crying? Because her work in giving birth to Joseph, the northern tribes, Ephraim and Benjamin, the southern tribe. Is it going to prove in vain? There's a reason why this is happening. In verse 16, thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of their enemy. He says, stop crying, and he's going to give them ten reasons we're going to give them quickly. Number one, the Lord is going to keep his promise, return the people from their exile and their captivity and their subsequent restoration to the land. So he's saying, stop crying. Because I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to restore you and I'm going to bring you back. Look at verse 17. There's a hope in your future, it says, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Think about it. I'm going to keep my promise. There is hope in her children's future. That's what he's saying. It looks like I had him for no good reason. No, there's a very good reason. How do you explain the pain and the suffering? It's because of discipline and sin. But there's going to be redemption and reconciliation and a reward. There's hope for your children's future. Look at verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Think about this for just a moment. The Lord's discipline will stir... The children to repent of their sin. That's the idea. I've heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You've chastised me and I was chastised. In other words, the discipline and the punishment brought them to a place where they were willing to say, you have my attention. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. Is that what the discipline does for you? Have you ever cried out and said, OK, God, you have my attention now. I'm willing to hear what you have to say. I'm willing to do what you want me to do. I'm willing to go in the direction that you called me to go. In the last days, the people will confess that they've strayed from the Lord. That they've been stubborn and persistent in their rebellion. God's disciplining them like an unruly calf. They'll turn back to him in the future. Ephraim is a part of the northern kingdom. He's saying, even Ephraim will return. What? What? The wicked apostate, the person who sacrificed to false gods, the person who engaged in every kind of unthinkable wickedness—now yeah, I'll, I'll take them. I'll take them just like I'll take you. The people will be forgiven and restored. Verse nineteen: Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. The picture, by the way, is of a massive turning of repentance and revival. At long last, they understand their awful sin. They beat their breasts in utter shame and humiliation. That's the idea. Stricken with a sense of this overwhelming sorrow and conviction that they'll confess the disgrace of their sins that they've committed throughout the ages. This spirit of true repentance will grip their heart. And they return to the Lord. Ephraim, my dear son. Is he a pleasant child? No, Dennis the menace. For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. How does all this happen? Is Ephraim my dear son? The answer is yes. Notice what it doesn't say. Is Ephraim my disobedient son, my rebellious son, my apostate son, my wicked, estranged son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Here's the idea. God desires reconciliation. Have you ever felt guilty because of your sin? Have you ever felt estranged from God? Have you ever felt like you wanted so desperately to go back to Him, but that He wasn't available to you? And here the Lord says, no... My heart yearns for him and I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. How is this possible? Because the Lord desires reconciliation like a father who loves his child dearly. He's not looking for reasons to keep them apart. He's looking for reasons to keep them together. Even though they've wandered so far. The Lord will have compassion on those. Now think about this. He's saying, I am willing to have compassion on Ephraim. Where is Ephraim? They've been scattered to Assyria. They've gone north of Lebanon. They've gone past the Baltic Ocean. They are now on the outskirts of Russia and Eastern Europe. They're scattered. They're scattered. They're far, far away. And you might think, Way too far to ever return. But the Lord says no. No matter how far you've gone. No matter what journey you've taken. Look what it says in verse 21. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway. The way in which you went. Turn back. O virgin of Israel. Turn back. To these your cities. Here's the idea. Who sets up the signposts? Who makes the landmarks? It's the generations that will precede them. How will they do that? They're, They're supposed to follow the signs that have been set up in the previous generations. The former generations will point them back to the land. The signs and the teachings are the commandments of God and the promises of God and the prophecy of God. The signs are the messages from God's prophets. Do you understand what the signs and the landmarks are? These are the things that have been erected, that have been put in place so that you could know how to get back to God. How do I get back to God? Here's how you get back to God. You pray and you repent of your sin and you turn from your sin and you turn to Him. What are some of the signs that you've set up? Well, you know what? Pray. Go to church, read your Bible, cultivate the gifts that God has given to you. Begin to fulfill the ministry that God has called you to. The signs are the former generations who point them back to the promised land. Because think about it, it's going to be removed. How do they even know there is a promised land? Someone needs to be able to tell their children and someone needs to be able to tell their grandchildren. And you need to be able to tell your children and you need to be able to tell your grandchildren. There's a Bible. It's true. There's a story in that Bible. It's about Jesus, about his life and his death and his resurrection. But there's going to be powerful, powerful people and powerful, powerful influences that are going to tell you, close the Bible. It can't be trusted and don't believe the story anymore. But guess what? You need to be able to say, oh, yes, you can. You can believe the Bible. You can believe the story. You can believe that it's true. The signs are the messages from God's prophets. And the ultimate sign, the ultimate sign, is the Lord Jesus Himself and the Messiah. In verse 22, it says, How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. What in the world does that mean? There are literally dozens of interpretations, and I could spend a whole study just on the interpretations. But whatever else it means, it must mean that God is going to cause something to happen that has never happened before or since. And I'm going to suggest to you it says, A woman shall encompass a man. Unfaithful Israel will draw near to the Lord. The picture, the immediate picture, is the embrace of a woman who clings to a man in order to provide support and encouragement. But I'm going to suggest to you another interpretation as well. That a virgin gives birth. That a woman will encompass a man. That the promised deliverer Is going to take place. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel. They shall again use the speech in the land of Judah. And in the cities when I bring them back in their captivity. The Lord bless you. O home of justice and mountain of holiness. Here's the idea. The Lord of hosts. The God of Israel. The people call upon the Lord to bless the people in the land and in Jerusalem, and I think it's even more, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah. Do you realize that for hundreds, even thousands of years, Hebrew became became a dead language, a useless language. But if you go to Jerusalem today, you walk through the streets, you can hear people go, tov, Shalom. They'll say, Stuff like. I'm trying to think of a Hebrew phrase that I can think of, but they're speaking Hebrew. They're saying hi, they're saying bye, they're saying kin, yes, lol, no, they're speaking Hebrew in the land. Do you know what? 500 years ago, if you would have said that people would be speaking Hebrew in the city of Jerusalem, they would have laughed at You. The people call upon the Lord. They bless the city of Jerusalem. And look what else it says. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities together. Farmers and those going out with flocks. Here's the idea. It's a picture of peace where people live together and they work together in peace. When is this going to happen? In the latter days. When Jesus returns. Establishes his kingdom. He will bring peace and justice. Verse 25. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Rachel's sorrow is the sorrow of a mother grieving her children. There's all kinds of sorrow. You know, it's sorrowful when the Broncos lose. It's sorrowful when the stock market plummets. It's sorrowful. There's lots of things that are sorrowful, but there's nothing there's nothing, there's nothing more sorrowful than when a mother loses her child. It's an anguish that is almost impossible to comprehend. But the Lord will meet the needs of the weary. He will plumb the depths of the pain and the sorrow that has been in your life as a result of sin. The promises that He will refresh and give rest to anyone who's been crushed under the weight of suffering and under the weight of trial and under the weight of sorrow. And that's why He asks Rachel, you can stop crying now because I'm going to make this right. And I'm going to fulfill my promise. And I'm going to keep my word. Augustine of Hippo said, The house of my soul is too small for you to come into it. May it be enlarged by you. It is in ruins. Restore it. He said that in the 4th century AD. Sound familiar? My life and my heart. And my soul is too small for you. Lord, in order to have you in my life, you're going to have to enlarge my life. And oh, by the way, Lord. My life's a mess. (laughs) And God says, I'll restore it. I'll restore it. It'll be my promise. I'll do it. I will draw you. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will redeem you. I will ransom you. I will find you. And then I'll provide for you. And this is only verse 25. You can see why we have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage. What an amazing vision. And Lord, we know that one day that vision is going to come to to pass that, Lord, in the process of restoration, you're going to do exactly what you promised. That, Lord, you are going to call and you are going to claim and you are going to give all kinds of practical benefits and you are going to save and you are going to abundantly provide. But, Lord, I pray for that person who needs to cry out to you right now, who needs a provision right now. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would call out to you, that, Lord, that they would confess their sin. That, Lord, that they would be truly, really, substantially, fundamentally changed. Not just sorry for their sin, but willing to turn from it and turn to you forever and trust you forever. And, Lord, I pray for that person who's vulnerable. That person who's been taken advantage of. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you'll be their strong tower, and that you'll be their ever-present help in time of need and that, Lord, you'll do the work. You'll do everything that is necessary to bring them back to a place of forgiveness and hope, restoration and redemption because of what Jesus has done. He's our deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.